0: The game is rigged, but you cannot lose if you do not play.
1: You're listening to Walking the Wire, a podcast examining David Simon's groundbreaking series one episode at a time with an affectionately critical eye. This show's intended audience has watched the series in its entirety at least once, so consider this your spoiler warning. I'm BZ Douglas, an independent journalist covering police abuse, prosecutorial misconduct, and political corruption in Cleveland and Ohio at large.
2: And I'm Philip Fairbanks, I wrote the book Pedogate Primer, The Politics of Pedophilia, and am currently working on a book about Kai the Hitchhiker's wrongful conviction. Every episode, BZ and I will be joined by authors, activists, journalists, ex-dealers, and maybe even an ex-cop or two. Each guest brings authentic and enlightening experiences relating to the world of The Wire. Thanks for listening, and come connect with us at walkingthewirepod.com.
1: and welcome to season 1 episode 2 of the wire this episode is titled the detail and i'm here with my host philip fairbanks uh, and our <clears throat> new uh back end producer slash future guest uh, isaac who we came across after doing some post-recording live stream or uh, Twitter spaces, and he hopped in with so much awesome stuff. And this episode is actually a great uh, introduction to that because one of the most mind-blowing things you brought up in our conversation, which led to us saying, like, will you just come on and be our Baltalorian and give us all of the things (laughs) we don't know? And it was when we were talking about how much we uh, love the medical examiner character and uh, so, Isaac, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit and then tell us a bit about
3: the real medical examiner in the Baltimore Police Department? Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, my name is Isaac. I was born and raised in Baltimore City. Uh, and yeah, at the, at the time that The Wired set, circa 2002, uh, this guy, Dr. David Fowler, was the chief medical examiner for Baltimore City. And later went on to become the chief medical examiner for the state of Maryland. And this this guy is from Cape Town, South Africa. And he only left and moved to Baltimore after apartheid was ended because uh, he wanted to get the fuck out of there and go to uh, a different apartheid city, I guess. And uh, he's, he's built his entire career off of uh, like defending dirty cops and claiming that people who were Murdered by the police, actually died of something else. He claimed that Anton Black's death uh, after being struck by cops in 2018 was an accident. He uh, he claimed that Tyrone West, who was suffocated to death by multiple Baltimore City cops uh, in 2013, was died of heart failure. And he made national news recently uh, as as a he testified as an expert witness in the trial of Derek Chauvin. Saying that, uh, that that George Floyd's death was caused by a combination of heart like heart problems and and opioids, so and uh, I think like four hundred other forensic pathologists signed a letter of no confidence in this guy, saying that you know he's a fraud and he's just defending crooked cops. So that's uh that was the actual Baltimore City medical examiner uh, in the time period when this is being said. I don't know if the character is based on him or not. Well, no, that's one of those things where,
1: you know, I just wonder like uh, to what extent Simon was aware of the character of the actual medical examiner (laughs) and if he, how conscious of a choice he made to be like,
3: let's write a real affable black guy for Baltimore. Right. I mean, he, he must have been aware of David Fowler, you know, David Simon was a, was a police writer for most of his career, you know? And, uh, Yeah, Yeah, but but that's the interesting thing about the liar, I think, is for all the, like, compared to every other police procedural, it's, you know, it's so gritty and realistic and shows you the corruption and, like, the the pettiness of the office politics and the police department. And yet, compared to real life, it's still a bit of a whitewash. (laughs) And the actual Baltimore Police Department is so much more corrupt than it's depicted here. Like one thing I really like in in uh in the interview we're about to hear with Tim Tolka uh which is really good is uh <laughs> is is that like yeah in in real life it's it's worse there are no McNulties who really give a shit <laughs> when well, it's no, not I've their party. treated uh I think
1: he basically says they get treated like a narc uh if they're really trying to do the job and and dig in and he also has related to like you know the major this episode deals with the fallout where we left off with the witness dying uh, and uh, Tolka tells the story of, you know, all of his stories don't relate to Baltimore. They relate to Warren and Steubenville where the first consent decrees in the nation came down here in Ohio. And he relates the story of a, like a dealer who had three officers paid them like 15 K to kill a witness.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That, that fucking rules. Honestly, It reminds me of uh, of the murder of Sean Suter in Baltimore, who was a cop who was going to testify against other cops in the gun trace task force who were, who you know were on trial for selling dope and selling guns that they were confiscating off dealers on the street, wow. and then the, the the day before he's he's set to testify against them, he mysteriously shoots himself twice in the head <laughs> in an alley. just like Gary Webb.
1: The author yeah. of uh, Dark Alliance about the uh, Contras running running guns and co- guns into uh, South America and cocaine into L.A. Yeah, he shot
3: himself twice in the head. Yep. It's amazing. Exactly. Thing. Sean Suter got Gary Webbed. And I think David Simon has a new uh, HBO miniseries coming out soon called We Own This City uh, that's about that case that I'm really excited for. Um, I think Simon himself said he, he realizes he went a little easy on the BPB. And this is—I'm uh, wondering how much of a like what da- what parts of the story David
1: is filling in that are you know, uh, or what he's focusing on because I've seen the documentary about Sean Suter um, uh, directed uh,
3: by Sonya who played Kima. Yep,
1: and right. <laughs> uh, oh, the title of that Slow Hustle. Yeah, so I'm curious to see uh, what exactly it is Simon's going to zero in and focus in on that and. Uh, I'm planning on on paying close attention. I think we'll probably be doing some episodes on that.
3: I I went to high school with Sonia's daughter. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> if you uh, if you're somehow hearing this, Sophia, B S A O eight, say how you want to cur it. But yeah, hell yeah, and and uh, we I cannot respect uh,
1: her her uh, her mama anymore for uh the fact that you know what she's gone from doing the wire to this i mean she's already our most celebrated character in every discussion we've had it's just like you know Kima. Kima's the competent one mm-hmm. Kima's the moral one is the strong one
3: um oh yeah and yeah. she's just a great actor Sonia steals every scene that she's in i think but it's um you know and it it's sort of such i think you guys said in your first episode it was like a very like early uh depiction of like a black queer woman on TV in a time when it wasn't you know common to see that but um, another thing I like in the, the interview with Tim Tolka is that uh, he, he mentions the, the the consent decree the DOJ consent decree that that the that the Baltimore Police Department was under after the murder of Freddie gray and I mean, I I remember I was living in Baltimore, you know, at, at the time, and the police went on a work slowdown in protest of it, and it got really easy for me to dodge the, to like dodge the fare on the light rail because suddenly there weren't any fare inspectors anymore. Yeah, yeah,
1: I, I I'm I'm really excited for all of the you know lived experience you have in Baltimore, um, as someone who who pays attention to this stuff, um, and. Yeah. And then, like I said, Tim Tim just brings so many interesting real life. He has a story about a real life Presbo, someone who is the grandson of a chief getting into all kinds of nonsense. And that this is the episode where, uh, you know, I I was telling uh, someone uh, on the one of the wire Twitter uh, accounts put out a photo of Daniels and and Presbo from this episode. And wow, it's really amazing to think that these two have – Remotely redeemable arcs coming.
3: Yeah, well that that's another thing, man. I think in in real life, the (laughs) killer cops or or brutal cops don't go on to to become, you know, (laughs) school teachers with a heart of gold. You know,
1: yeah. 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 They mostly just collect
3: their pensions, you know, right. Or once in a blue moon, they get caught, you know, in the gun trace task force and prosecuted. (laughs) But I, I don't think that's the norm.
1: So I don't know how much more – I mean you've got – Isaac's got so much stuff uh, to bring to us. Um, he's going to be our guest on episode five. We are um, – we wanted to announce too that uh, the week after we release, we release our episodes on on Wednesdays. And then the uh, following Wednesday, we will be doing a live stream Twitter space. Uh, whatever you're comfortable joining us for and uh, if you have any questions or anything you want to throw in after listening to the episode uh, like I said this one has a lot of great stuff in it that's worth talking about and um, I don't want us to talk about it for too long because I'd rather you just get in and listen to it but I'm excited to have introduced Isaac to you and everybody Uh, we have a patreon and we would love to get our first supporter I'm gonna ask Tim Tolka uh, if he'll donate uh, PDF oh, of his boy. book to yeah, yeah. Uh, whoever our first five Patreon supporters are, and uh, Phil, I don't yeah, know if you'd yeah. be down to like throw that in as an incentive. Like, you join the, join the Patreon for a limited time only, you get all our P- all our authors PDFs. Our guest today, Mr. Tim Tolka, he's the author of an excellent book called Blue Mafia about the history of the consent decree's origins in Ohio uh, and the first ones, which were in Warren and Steubensville. Uh, Tim, say, hey, introduce yourself. What are you up to these days?
4: Hello, everyone. Um, Thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited. I'm a longtime fan of The Wire, and I've been studying police misconduct for about 10 years. So it gives me perspective to uh, the real life kind of stuff that The Wire is talking about.
1: And, and I, with there, every app- a
4: screenwriter, mostly.
1: Yeah, man. We I've had some phone calls with Tim about screenplays that he wishes he could write. Are <laughs> crazy. Yeah. Uh, you've got some awesome irons in the fire. Um, and so every episode of this, we're going to like go deep into a single episode. But I think up top, uh, Tim, I'd be curious to know, like as a whole, like what are the most meaningful things of The Wire to you? Like when did you see it and, and how did it land on you? Because like for, for me, watching it now is very different, you know, as a journalist, whereas I was not when I first developed an affection for the show.
4: I was just starting to do some journalism when I started watching it and it really blew me away and I felt like I was really behind because I had not watched it when it came out. Um, But now that I look back on it, um, the, the police departments that I was studying are actually much worse than The Wire and I can explain why after we get more into it but in terms of the meaning of the wire, um, for me, it's it's a a brilliant contextualization of the kind of power dynamics that go on in every police department, and it's so familiar, I'm sure, to cops from you know the county sheriff to big metro police departments. Those kind of conversations, those kind of interrogations, uh, the kind of frustration that they experience is universal. It's
2: like an open secret. It seems like, uh, you know. Uh, unfortunately, I've only been able to skim skim your book so far. But uh, hopefully we'll have you on as a guest uh, uh, in the future again. And uh, I'll have, you know, read up front to cover by then. But even just skimming through, even just like, you know, go a a page or two and check, you know, uh, just skim down the page. And it's like it's it's baffling that this went on for so long. And it's this is horrific abuse, uh, you know, uh, abuse of power, uh, corruption and cover up. And, and and another thing that just pisses me off especially uh, also the media's complicity in this it's you know they're not interested in covering covering these stories you know i'm uh, uh w- one of the stories i've been doing recently uh kai the hitchhiker um you know he discovered uh using his his time on the the legal library computers there's like 30 plus years of lawyers like this galfi guy uh that he alleges drugged and raped him Uh, you know, there's 30 years of lawyers in, in, you know, sex crimes and sex crimes against children. And it's like, you know, they get probation and therapy and a six-month suspension from practicing law. And it's never in the papers. And it's like, this is 30 years of this, and it's never in the papers. So it's like, you know, it's not even just the corrupt police system. It's the corrupt system. You know, the police could not do this without... Uh, you know, the the, the the press turning a blind eye half the time. Exactly. In and this well, episode
4: that we were talking about, uh, the command structure is angry that one of the cops has leaked the story to the media. And the problem in small departments is that even if they leaked it to the media, the media is often too afraid to even publish it.
2: Right. Yeah.
1: It would have to be coming from a judge as the case is in this, you know, or someone, someone big and, and, and elsewhere, not like where they'd feel like they're, they're, you know, protected to some degree. And, you know, Tim, you said that like the cops in the wire are a lot less brutal than what you covered in Warren, Ohio, but is that true? Because that's one of the things I think we want to get into long-term is like, what is the Baltimore that was shown here? and what's the baltimore today and do we know more about the baltimore of this time than than is shown on the wire um but the thing is like you know this show zeroes in on to some degree it puts uh its focus on the the cops who give a shit and one thing that uh t- we talked about that like immediately landed on me uh in the first episode was that the, it's a positive thing in this story. It's a positive force in the story that a police officer is really close with a, a former prosecutor who's now a judge. And uh, do you want to talk about, like, the relationship that a police officer and a prosecutor has had, uh, like, as, as it relates to what's in your book with Stephen Stearns?
4: Yeah, so... There's been, okay, in, in Steubenville, which was under consent decree from 2001 to 2005, um, <clears throat> the prosecutor was good friends with the police, and he had his own narcotics squad that had like a Officer that wasn't a certified peace officer, but he was a vet and he had connections, but he had no morality at all. He was just like stealing drugs from drug dealers and selling them for himself.
1: Designated as like a secret service?
4: Yes, he was a secret service agent. Mercenary. Employed by the prosecutor, (laughs) which uh, nowadays the new prosecutor is married to a sergeant. So the sergeant makes the arrest and his wife prosecutes mm. his uh defendants and they the locals don't see a problem with this We've even the supreme no court of ohio problem. put their blessing on this relationship even though people tried to complain about it but uh. they're just like well what do you want you know it's a small town everybody's related to each other in warren the prosecutor the assistant prosecutor was from a law enforcement family so she took it so personally that one of the, the cases that involved police brutality and a strip search, when she lost the criminal section before the civil rights case started, she was crying that they had not managed to convict this 53-year-old father of four, you know, on, like, fake charges. And it shows you how, like, invested they are you know in the wire these people have a conscience so they won't like willfully turn a blind eye like directly when it's right in their face but in these other in the towns that i studied they would fight actively against the truth and suppress it right. you know even the videos and, and cover up really really bad them, stuff the, the one of the stories
2: that that like just it's so graphic to think of um a kid getting dragged across uneven pavement and i'm just like and that's just once again this is just just one specific example in this book because it's like it's pervasive uh stuff as bad as that you know and uh and 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 like you said the 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 complicity with with the prosecutors and the judges and the media and you know, because it's it's like people talk about, oh, you know, uh, uh, there's a problem with 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 cops. Well, it's not just the cops. They're you know, it's a codependent type situation. The 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 cops are completely dependent on the system uh, to be able to run amok like that.
1: Well, it's like yeah. I say, they're they're at the end of a leash is the thing. Like right. you know, exactly. if we talk about like we got to defang the and enforcers. declaw the cops. They're at the end of the leash. And you know, like the other thing that I, I recall from your book, Tim, is too, um, how, you know, they would stack charges. If somebody was in for something, they'd find some way to get something else on them while they had a pending indictment.
4: Yeah, they would do all kinds of dirty tricks. As a screenwriter, I see the choices that are being made in the portrayal of law enforcement. And They want to show that these people have their own concerns that are getting in the way of their concern for justice and the rule of law. And I could see that as a screenwriter, but as a journalist writing about the people that I saw in Warren and Steubenville, it was was pretty hard to see their care or concern for right because they they just victimize these black families and as a screenwriter you don't want to show that you don't want to make them look super bad because then the audience won't sympathize with them at all right you know and i mean you have to really like walk a line you know, in terms of how bad you make the bad guys. Cause in the wire, you got the one officer that's always wanted to to bust heads, Herc. Herc. And then you got Kima, who is by the book, you know, and then you got um the Ellis Carver character who is Herc's partner. And he's kind of in the middle. You know, he's like he's not a goody two shoes, but he's not a brutal cop like Herc. But in the in the departments where I was studying, there were, you know, about three or four just brutal officers that just...
1: What was were... the Herc to Chima ratio or Herc to Car- yes. Car- Carver ratio?
4: Well, there was a lot of good officers. You know, I never want to make the suggestion that the place was full of bad officers, but the bad officers were completely out of control. They were like just busting heads all over the place, you know? But and we, the- you know, we
1: really get into in this episode, like the, yeah, this is where we start to get glimpses of who Herc is in the first episode. And in this one, um, it really kind of bubbles up. And there's a lot we've already, um, you've, you've hit on here uh, that I want to get into with like stuff that comes out in the episode. So, I mean, do we want to just roll back and just roll through like what happens beat by beat here? Because um, we start with one of my favorite minor characters in The Wire, um, it, and I lo- I finally like looked up his name. He's just one of those people. I'm like, I always enjoy you on screen, but I don't know your name. Uh, Eric Dellums, the autopsy doctor
0: mm-hmm.
1: with like the, the 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 really big fro in the back, and, oh, and he, he comes guy. back yeah, throughout yeah. the show. Yeah, I love that guy. So Eric Dellums, he's got a fantastic career. He does a lot of video game voiceover.
0: Oh, really? um,
1: so yeah, they're doing they're doing the autopsy of uh, the witness who was killed at at the end of the last episode. And so that's where we pick things up. Yep. And another witness. Oh, and you know what? Yeah. We got the dead witness and then basically strategizing, like, you know what to do about it and, and bunk just, you know, so we have like this, uh, this constant tension, right. With kind of McNulty and anybody on this case is like, look, just let it be. We, you know, yeah, don't
2: get the bosses <laughs> riled up, man. and you yeah.
1: and I think that's that's McNulty's purpose as a character is to kind of be the avatar of like, well, what is it for someone who gives all the fucks in these systems, you know? So and,
4: true, and there is there is an officer that was like that in my book. And it took me forever to find him, but once I found him, he kind of saved my faith in law enforcement because I got to see the one who was frustrated in that system. Right. And he went to crazy lengths to try to expose stuff that was going on, uh, but the system kind of smashed him, you know. And yeah. it's similar to McNulty. McNulty's punished for doing the right thing, and this officer was too, because when you're in a dirty a dirty department where where the blue wall is really high, you know? Um, yeah, who are the, you the good officer 40? is the one that nobody trusts. Yeah. Yep. Because the thing is, McNulty is referred to as good police. He's the one that's like this whole concept of good police is developed. But in reality, a guy like McNulty would not be regarded as a trustworthy cop by his fellow officers because he's a narc he cares too much
1: absolutely and you know getting like you know in in this episode just to, like even just to jump around because it's one of the biggest things that landed on me re-watching it this time around is you know we have the introduction of uh prez Belusky, Pretty soon, you know, and once they get into their dirty, new, their digs, he fires off his gun. We find out he's an idiot. And then what What else do we find out that is is something that's big that you hit upon earlier? You know, everybody's related to each other. His name. Why no is example. this guy has like okay. shot up his car before already. Yeah. Now he shoots up a wall. And <sighs> then in this episode,
2: Both cases Kat, he, lies, you know, he does he this lies casual to the gills.
1: act of brutal violence that ruins <sighs> A
2: 14-year-old child, you know?
1: And this whole... So, like, we have him being protected, and it results in, like, he's out there just kind of, like... I feel like Prez, the way they're setting him up is, like, he's just sort of, like, blowharding to, like, fit in almost. He's a tryhard in some ways. And... But what we have there is, like, seeing that, like, who's the bigger bastard? Is it the bastard that is Prez? or is it Daniels we watch him coach them on how to avoid yeah. charges uh at one point Herc says all, all four of them but none of them were sustained and and just as ma- like matter of fact what does daniel say but they're all true
0: and the
1: chief with him always like, knows don't do that the blue wall and it's very subtle yeah. in this episode but it's the it most like funny. starkly like there's the blue wall right there
4: yeah yeah, and it's really accurate because the chief knows who the brutal ones are. In Steubenville, there was this moment where uh, the chief is being recorded and somebody calls him with a, a complaint they've got from police brutality, and he goes, oh, it, was, it was so-and-so, I figured it was so-and-so. And it's it's like the chief always knows who the brutal ones are. He can totally predict it, but it's in his interest to you know, cover it up. You feared for your life. And that's what they are coached to say. You know, you feared for your life. It doesn't matter if he was 115 pounds, like five, six, you know, they still feel feared for their life. And uh, it reflects badly on, on the
2: upper command as well. That's, that's another reason why, you know, they're going to cover for him. It's not, it's not all about, you know, just protecting uh, uh, the little guy or somebody uh, lower on the chain, but, you know, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's going to get them in deep shit as well uh, if someone under their command uh, has done something like this, you know, committed police brutality.
4: It's natural to want to protect the guys who you trained. You know, you know them. You know their families, probably. So it's, it's just like, in American law enforcement, the people are supposed to have conflicting goals. So the prosecutor is supposed to work against the police to make sure that false charges don't get uh, convicted, you know? Right. Uh, but in, in reality, role. everybody wants to be nice to each other. So the, yeah, and it's, it's like a perfect uh, economic model where you're not yeah, thinking yeah. about externalities or something. And it's like, well, wait, no. Uh, the justice system doesn't work as it was, you know, intended to. It works as people... Needed to, you know,
1: and and w- and one thing that is a rolling part of this show that's ingrained into the plot um, is how the political nature of prosecutors and judges, their political considerations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, the mayor um, are perverting justice left and right. And yeah, with the, with the whole inciting incident of this thing, like when, you know, then what happens, you know, we get a glimpse of like where the detail is going to be thrown in this basement again, like that, you know, like just demonstrating who gives a shit about this. And then McNulty goes back to the judge to tell him that the witness is dead and the judge is blase about it. He's like, fine. All right. You, you told me great go. Um, And, and it's, it's even, even to an extent that like who, who cares about this witness that died or what that means? Um,
4: yes. So I really, this is one of the things that first came up to me with this, uh, with watching it again, is that there was an analogous situation in Warren, Ohio, which is 18,000 people population. A government witness was shot in the back of the head at a, uh, at a bar in his car. And a drug dealer in state custody was rumored to allegedly have offered three police officers that were his homies fifteen thousand dollars to get rid of this witness and wow. they paid a local hitman three office, three law enforcement officers paid a local hitman to kill a witness and when that happened in contrast to this whole you know rattling of the the chain in the wire there was no detail created they only sent a pretty high ranking officer who's an experienced detective from another department to investigate this and he did a pretty straight up investigation but the prosecutor wouldn't charge any of the police officers
0: wow. so
4: the Hitman and two guys who worked with him as accomplices went to jail. Two of them got their convictions reversed later. So there's only one person still in jail for this. And the hitman who pulled the trigger never went to jail. And the officers who planned this guy's death still, uh, one of them is a preacher. The other is still a police officer. (laughs) and oh my God. yeah it's like it's truth is stranger than fiction people wouldn't even believe the real story knocked up against st- stacked up against the wire because the wire kind of like shows people well, caring about it you know, you know that was you know
1: and for, i have sort of the same thing watching you know this plot of like oh it's the drug empire that killed the witness um yeah. for intimidation purposes where yeah, I'm tracking the story of Tony Viola and Dan Casares, where the whistleblower who worked for a prosecutor who has these allegations of misconduct, she was set to testify and found dead of of a very uh, suspicious uh, uh, alcohol poisoning, and mm-hmm. and yeah, that like the that's it's like we're i'm dealing with the the complete you know the other side of it is like int- government intimidation of of witnesses um yeah but the uh yeah uh, phil did you have anything on like um sort of like the er- the early how the case moves along with the state's witness and the judge's reaction
2: oh right yeah well uh he, uh you know once again, to tie it in with this, this thing in New Jersey, it's like, it begins to be a point where, uh, you know, like Tim said, you realize that truth is stranger than fiction. And that as, as bleak and gritty and grim and realistic as the wire is, um, you know, you go to like union County, New Jersey or uh, Marlin, Texas, or, you know, one of the things that tripped me out about the book is I'm from Warren County tennessee and you know uh, like we had this this sheriff who was the sheriff for life you know benevolent dictator for life and one year there was a guy that ran against him and his whole thing was and like there were little like flyers around town that listing specific instances of like how millions of dollars had been defrauded taxpayer dollars defrauded gone to like nepotism and embezzlement and you know all this stuff benefiting jackie metheny and jackie metheny's family oh god now i can't ever go home again but you know and it's like like the 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 da's crooked and, and and married to a guy who who runs uh, runs numbers so they uh you know uh did a reverse sting against another guy who had some gambling going on uh you know for some weed they yeah, they sold some weed to a guy so they could arrest him because he was horning in on their gambling this is the da's uh, husband, you know, like this is where I'm from. This is Warren County, and I'm like, you know, so hearing about Warren, Ohio, and I'm like, oh God, it's true. It's it's
4: everywhere. Actually, yeah. it's funny that you should mention Warren County. Warren is a first name. Warren County, Tennessee. A person watched uh, my YouTube video interview <laughs> recently about the book, and he was like, "Yeah, I live in Warren County, Tennessee, and all this bad stuff happened to me." And he oh, went that on was to talk me. About all this stuff, no, that was it's me. exactly <laughs> like you were just describing. It's the same county. <laughs> yeah, no, that was that was but me. It's talking all about over. The, uh... It's all over the U.S. And the small small departments have, have <laughs> as bad or worse problems as the big ones because there's no meaningful checks, you mm-hmm. know. There's no checks yeah. on power when somebody is really abusing power in these small departments, it gets to like the, you know, seventh level of hell before anybody wants to do anything about it. And even then often they can't do anything about it. But I, I wanted to get back to what you said about the actual Baltimore police and how this might compare because the DOJ did a long long, public report about the baltimore police department and in particular their um their like task force like narcotics force was a rogue operation which is exactly what happened in steubenville um and it takes the department of justice to go in there and investigate in order to figure out what's happening but in in baltimore they were like they were like defecating in people's houses to leave as a calling card for their narcotics squad, for example. God. But they were just doing this stuff that was completely crazy, you know, in addition to set-ups and, and cover-ups and stuff like that, you know? Like really mean-spirited, like spiteful behavior for police officers. It's like psychological oh, go
0: warfare. It's, it's sociopathic.
4: Yeah, totally sociopathic. But yeah, if you and live I mean, in a place that is dysfunctional on that level, you become traumatized, you become bitter, you become depressed, you become an alcoholic as some of those guys are, you know, barely functioning alcoholics. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, these guys are, they're responding like human beings to a very messed up system, you know?
2: Right.
1: Yeah. And that's one of the things you know, we we definitely agree that um, The Wire does really well is show where these, you know, where the, the corner kids are coming from and really yeah. has an affection for them. And, like, we have one of the great pit scenes where uh, um, uh, Wallace is musing on oh, the brilliance. of the, the nuggets? nuggets.
2: <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. And I love the... <laughs>
1: D being middle management just sees like, you know, like he's he just been demoted, sh- too, you know,
2: the so, going yeah. he's
1: just like, like someone, that's not about, how like, the what? world you goes. You think that anyone who's running the terrace <laughs> gets a bunch, all the money. like you know
2: <laughs> Exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the pit scenes are, you know, that's where they really like show like, like the heart and who these people are. And, and that, at that ground level. Um, but, uh, yeah, but D's cynicism comes through in that scene of like the what he's in, and then we have Wallace's idealism. He's like, well, he still had the idea. He
2: still had the idea. Um, I love that, yeah.
4: And then the, uh, the interrogation scene. You know, that's a really long scene. For a screenwriter, I very, very rarely write a scene that's five pages long, five minutes long, that one's about six minutes long. It's so long. What do you guys think was the purpose of that scene?
1: I had a lot of different feelings about that scene, yeah, coming back at it. Just because, it, well, the interrogation is them being sure D knows something and uh concocting a story, you know, telling... Uh, a lie and where it's supposed to be like oh look at how smooth they are it's awesome but i just keep thinking about like well what about when they do that and they're just wrong and then ultimately they are wrong because we learn later with that Dee didn't know about it i mean we get a glimpse right. of that with his look on his face when he hears about it but then we have the scene with avon where he's like yeah i wrote a letter i felt bad about it but ultimately he didn't know anything
2: <laughs> exactly yeah that, that I think that what that's you, one Paul? of those uh, big moments uh, uh, where we see D's crisis of conscience deepen and, you know, like, you know, it's got that kind of, Greek great tragedy sense of fatalism. This is what's going to, you know, lead to uh, all the tragedies that are about to befall him over the next several episodes up into the second season, uh, you know, are rooted in, I think a couple of moments were, were big turning points that that it's that look on his face. Like you said, when, when, uh, when he finds out that they killed the witness afterwards, you know, that's unnecessary. That's gratuitous. And he didn't want to be a part of that. He didn't know about that. Uh, But also in the last episode, that moment when, you know, when Avon says, he's like, yeah, you know, I figured if if I had to take my time, I'd take my time. And he's like, you know how it is. He's like, no, I don't don't know anything about jail. You think I'm going to know something like those are a couple of moments where D is starting to realize that. And I love how, you know, uh, when McNulty is kind of lecturing D about, you know, how come everything else in the world that gets sold. People don't have to kill each other over it. And, and we will hear D echo that later. It's like McNulty has literally gotten into D's head to the point where, you know, I mean, you know, I, I think there are a couple of other characters who will later experience a crisis of conscience that's rooted in that moment. So, like, McNulty has, like, you know, we hear the term ripples in the pond later, but this is, like, literally going to ripple out. So, so it, it, you know, that, that's my two cents as for why that, that scene runs on so long. It is kind of, you know, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a big domino there.
4: <clears throat> yep, yeah, I agree. I think that the scene establishes both Dee's crisis of conscience but it also shows how much McNulty really cares about this stuff, and it, it happens throughout the the whole show. If you think if you if we flash forward to when uh, McNulty talks to Dee's mom later, and he talks about how people didn't give a crap about you know. So and so, I don't want to. We've all seen it. We know what happens. Right?
2: But, yeah. Uh, Spoiler alert.
4: Dolphy really, really cares, and he can totally push people's buttons in their conscience and make them feel bad. And it's like he's a skilled officer, but he genuinely has a heart about this stuff. Even though he plays like plays tough, and he he talks the big, you know. That, that's part like, of what makes him Irish good, like style. Like-
2: the, the the rapport he has with people yep. is because he cares you know you can fake that like i've seen some i you know i mm-hmm. one of my weird hobbies i like to watch uh, police interrogation videos and i've seen some where you know you got somebody who's really done some heinous awful crimes you know uh you know rape and murder multiple people and uh, I've seen where like the interviewer gets them on their side. They're sitting, they're eating together, they're making jokes. And it's like, how can this guy and, and you realize because he's got to, you know, it's kind of like the 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 character from the Thomas Harris book, Mindhunter or whatever, you know, the 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 profiler guy. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's there's a need to kind of get in the head uh, uh, of some people. Uh, that requires building rapport, but with McNulty, I don't think it's fake. I don't think it's uh, it's it's not entirely cynical and used just as a ploy. Maybe also, but the reason why he's so good at it is because it's genuine.
4: Yeah, I agree. Oh, and
1: but, you know, right before the um, interrogation, and in the, um, when they're in the pit, and McNulty and Bunk approach, and the first thing they all assume. Is when they, you know, they find like a vial on the ground, and McNulty picks it up. They just assume, oh, you're going to plant that on us, mm-hmm. um, and and that assumption is, you know, like what's implied in that scene is that assumption is correct with right. most of the other cops that come by, like exactly. West, you know, West, because McNulty says them like, oh, well, we're not the Western, like yeah, of course they would do that,
4: <laughs>
1: and yeah, so it's like there's the complicity of just knowing how things are as police, like knowing and being candid, at least like, you know, like that, I think that's how a uh, officer like McNulty or anyone would have, like, if you're going to have any credibility when that kind of corruption goes on, um, and that sort of dirty policing, then you have to, like, when you're with, um, people on the, you know, that you're, I guess the, uh, antagonist to, you got to just r- be real with them. Like, yeah.
4: Yeah. One thing I was thinking about McNulty and officers like him is that the show is extremely realistic in their portrayal of the higher-ups caring about what McNulty is doing because officers like McNulty are few and far between and they get spread thin. But in Warren, for example, one of their good detectives quickly moved up to doing organized crime investigations with uh, the Bureau of Criminal Investigation of the Attorney General's Office, State Attorney General's Office. And so they get all these cool opportunities to be detailed in like county and state task forces. So in a place like Baltimore, these officers are already kind of in the main metro area for their state, you know? And so that's kind of like the better place to be if you're going to just try to go up to camp captain or something like that, you know, but in the smaller departments, an officer like that, that's really talented and has a quick, quick mind and notices things. He won't even stay at the local level. You know, Uh they won't get the benefit of his investigative skills because he'll get pushed up to better, cooler investigations, you know, so like local murders are like not nah, such a high priority. Oh, in yeah. uh, in Warren, they got like 40 murders that are unsolved. And this is a tiny little town. Mm-hmm. They can't solve a murder because nobody will talk to them. And this is something that is is very much present in The Wire, you know, the stop snitching campaign. Right? It's so powerful. And it works exactly like the old Omar Ta of the italian mafia
2: it's exactly the same well i I'd, I'd heard the term snitches get stitches before i was 12 years old you know i mean like uh i'm not from the you know any urban area i'm just from you know just rural, but I mean like there's a redneck mafia and a good old boy system too. And, and you don't want to go up against it in a small town any more than you would want to go against the five families in New York. You know Uh, you know, it's, it's about turf. Uh, The size of the turf doesn't matter. The, 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 the scope of control and power though is pretty comparable. Like, you know, there, there, there are folks in small towns who could like literally get away with murder. Um, you know, uh, we were yeah. talking about like the, the the vials thing. There was a story uh, I covered a few years ago. This couple, um, you know, uh, they were recovering addicts. So they'd used Kratom. And so they started selling Kratom uh, as well as doing, you know, a house cleaning business. So, you know, they'd gone from uh, addicts to, uh, you know, entrepreneurs. And then one day the police pulled them over and decided that, this brown leaf powder which looks totally like that's what heroin looks like right heroin is a brown leaf powder that smells like coffee and green tea mixed right is that what heroin looks like like a cop would know this right they got charged with heroin distribution for having like a kilo of kratom which is not that much kratom by the way that's like a couple months you know for me uh so it's not like they're, they've got this, but they're like, you've got a kilo of heroin. That's what they try to charge these people with. So yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, uh, they go pretty much, uh, unchallenged and unchecked sometimes. I'm glad that I, I got a chance to cover that story. I don't know if it made a difference, but I hope that it did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I'm, I'm like nobody else was uh, was covering that story though and it's it's you know just kind of ridiculous that something like that could happen and i'm the only one that like noticed or heard and said anything like that to me should have been a bigger story you know, that's uh, it, it's beyond gross, uh, uh, gross negligence. That's that's misconduct. You know, that's trying to uh, up your numbers of arrests on a big bus. That's trying to make up a big bus. Now, that's like what the FBI does with with uh, with terrorists. You know what I mean? They set some guy up. They give him some bomb making materials. They drive him across state borders and they go, OK, now you're under arrest. You know, like that's it's the same kind of thing yeah I have not yet oh. covered
4: a
1: story of planted drug evidence, but uh I did cover one where an officer was very diligent in how he did conducted the arrest and sees the drugs. You can see him find it on camera and there where there it is, and then he puts a camera up in the evidence room, but then what he catches is another officer coming in to ask him like, Hey, I want to break off some of that to take home to my lady.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs>
1: and the, and the officer who did the arrest and set up his camera to like film himself cataloging <laughs> the evidence so- he kicked. You can see him kicking him with his foot, and then, he, then like that. Then the officer who did that just like slumps over, oh and says God. something like, oh, "I'm just messing around." But he comes back on camera yeah. later and says, like, mumbles something like, "If you, if you murder, I'll kill you. I will kill you." All right? Yeah, that was uh, Larry McDonald, uh, East Cleveland fame. Uh, his nickname is Pac Man because he gobbles up lives and property.
4: Wow. But
1: um, yeah. Yeah, East Cleveland could use its own whole like wired level analysis because anyway, um, you know, uh, we, there's a scene that uh, we jumped over that is, uh, you know, while we're kind of talking about, like, w- you know, the cop archetypes that are represented in the wire as far as, you know, what type of cop McNulty is and that those people exist. Then um, we have such a great little uh, trio in Kima, Herc and Carver. They're working the roof. Um, the first time she's going up there mm-hmm. to take photos of uh, 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 everything and then so what do we get to see? We get to see Kima's just like dedication, Herc's frustration, and Carver's fascination. Yeah, and Bubbles imagination with how you <laughs> oh, know yeah. the head. Yeah, yeah. All that is great. <laughs>
4: and, you know, the One hat thing trick I is- of with uh, with bubbles is that the cops are so nice to him, you know. In Warren, the CIs were raked over the coals, like yeah. blackmailed, threatened, uh, set up all the time to keep them like in line, because they had to it, they had to coerce this the informants because nobody wanted to do it. So they would threaten to put their name out on the street as a snitch in right. order to wow. Get them That's to, a- uh, Death in
2: some places. The
4: the CIs were like stalked, terrorized, threatened with death, basically. And sometimes they did die, you know. And uh, the police, like they had this kind of pattern. It was totally a pattern, a pattern or practice of misconduct. And I didn't even cover that in my book so much because there was just so much of their like layers of bad stuff you know i knew that i was just scratching the surface and people later told me they were like you did a pretty good job but there was so much more that you didn't know
1: wow i gotta say you know you you kind of talking about like that i can immediately see that sort of conduct that treatment of cis is like well you're useless junkie trash you'll do what we we need you to do you'll say what we need you to say you'll see who we need you to see And it really breaks my heart to think of because who, who, you know, who do you is anyone that's a fan of the wire have a deeper affection for than Bubbles. And it that speaks to like then how anomalous of a cop is Kima as far as like someone who found Bubbles and doesn't treat them like that.
2: Right. You know, yeah
1: helps her a lot they, they go into that in this episode but wow like i as you were talking about ci's being treated that way and thinking about you know i hope everybody think about bubbles being treated that way because we don't see that in the wire later no. we do see though the cop who you know when later this season when, when kima gets shot and, and the one cop uh the, the bald guy just uh starts throwing bubbles around the room and that sounds closer to what you're talking about but yeah. Kima is not yeah. that cop
2: Oh, I hate that no. scene too. Like, because that's when Bubbles realizes, you know, that Kima's not okay. That mo, you know, because because Kima is his lifeline and connection uh, in a lot of ways. You know, uh, that she was willing to help him out so many times through the season. And that point where he's in the interrogation room and the cops about to beat his ass, and he's like. Give me, yeah. give me detective Griggs. And she, and he's like, detective Griggs isn't available. And, uh, you know, and, and he doesn't even know yet why, you know, that she's, you know, uh, but yeah. But in, the, in this one we start to see, yeah, but we see bubs
1: and like the hat routine. And this is, that's one of those things in the show. I just love how they don't hold your hand and you're kind of like Carver or Hercules, like, what are they doing exactly? And then it takes mm-hmm, you a minute yeah. to put it together Um, but it's, you know, the other thing on that we see on the roof is, you know, uh, Kima is running off. She's getting plates while Herc is just complaining about not getting respect. Yeah. And and, and it's kind of a nice slow build to the next, like the, the other major scene that, um, in this episode, which is when Herc and Prez and Carver just get themselves ticked up under a bridge, drinking beers. Uh... Be like, we got to go show them who we are, you know, yeah. and then they head to the towers in the middle of the night. And what, you know, one little thing in this show that always pissed me off is all the, the casual littering that they're just proud of. Like, <laughs> oh, you
4: know, like whether it's their police
1: station in a bridge, like, fuck you.
4: One thing I hey. like about that, about their, uh, like realism of the like drinking and driving and like deliberately going Two places to hurt people. You know, like the cops are very human, and a lot of times cops like Herc turn out to be good cops. Mm. Like musclehead guys who often lose their temper. If you get them past their like wild mid 20s, they can become excellent cops. Um, one of the most brutal cops that I studied in Warren turned out to be one of their best detectives. He, was, hmm. he had all kinds of complaints of brutality when he first started out. And he slowly got a hold of it. And he wasn't hurting so many people. But he turned out to be their best detective. He was absolutely worth training. And that's the tough thing is that we have made law enforcement such a bruiser occupation that detectives like Kima who may be more skilled than Herc in some ways are not like fully able to do all of the bits of the job as well as Herc can because of his muscles and stuff you know right and it's like well i would prefer to have more officers like Kima you know, you're going to have, so women in the police department is like the best thing to ever happen. Women as chief of the department, genius. Women in leadership in law enforcement is exactly what the U.S. needs more than anything. Because women are more, uh, this is a, an annoying kind of generalization, but in a occupation that is rule-based, Women often do well because they are often thinking of the organization rather mm-hmm. than their own uh, selfish trajectory like Herc, who's like, Why am I not getting respect? And Keem is like, How can I make my compute my community better? Right. You know?
0: Well she but knows how to
4: get
1: respect Is do be comp is is competent. She's interested in being competent. Right. <laughs> exactly. You guys ain't got no and, creep too. And you. they, they discount <laughs>
4: they discount her work and you know know, when she's showing the photos she's like i already got these photos taken and you know she's like why don't you guys appreciate me basically
1: well what's the to me the real mark of what what makes Kima stand out is like she's um the badass cop of the three of them she's just far and away better no one's telling her what to do They're just tagging along like what are you what are you doing and she doesn't even have time to like explain to them what she why she's running around doing doing things but you know like there wasn't like she doesn't need uh the authority to tell her how to go and that's the that that sort of creative thinking you know is the thing that to some degree you know what i hear of and sees to some like with some police departments and cultures is like them weeding that out. Like, no, it's more like you, we are looking to foster. You should have the chain of command um, mentality more. And if you're a creative thinker and, and yeah, I, 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 have, there's no end of now, um, you know, kind of hearing about or talking to officers who were in the situation, tried to do the right thing and were either forced out or gave up. They walked away. They found something else. Um, it's
4: yep. it's not In the that the past two or three years, violent. I've been approached by three police officers who wanted to write books. And one of them was a whistleblower. Another one wanted to... All three of them basically wanted to do tell-alls. Oh, and wow. And I only ended up getting one of them as a client. And I wrote the book and I... As I told Brandon, it's incredible, uh, but it's so inflammatory It's so problematic. The anti-hero aspect of the protagonist is just overwhelming. Uh-huh. And so I wouldn't want to put my name out there as a rule <laughs> cop either. You know, It's really complicated for them. I totally appreciate how much struggle they go through when they want to do the right thing, and it's not convenient.
2: You know, that's something we don't see a lot yeah. in the wire, but we see a bit sometimes. People can change. People can be rehabilitated. The so-called rehabilitation system is probably not the best uh, means, means of doing so as, the, uh, as it's being run. But, you know, sometimes people do hit rock bottom. Uh, do find out that, you know, there's a better way of life. Sometimes they can't imagine a better way of life, and then when they can, uh, you know, uh, are, are able to make changes. So, you know, I think that's that, that's something to remember, too.
4: <clears throat> I wanted to mention about real-life Prez Belusky. So in Warren, the chief's godson became a cop, and he was terrible. He was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. He had a racist bar. Think about that. He had a <laughs> racist bar. The cop owned a bar, and it was a racist bar. So yeah, uh, We don't need to know the
1: name of it or anything more than it was a racist it's bar. not open anymore,
4: unfortunately. But he led his own department on a chase, and he is the chief's godson. And so they arrest him. And instead of wow. saying his name on the radio, they say his badge number. Because oh. they know
0: everybody's oh, listening. Insane.
4: And they don't want to <laughs> say, like, it's the chief's godson. So they're just like, uh, <laughs> 75438. We picked up 75438. In <laughs> the police station, they're like, oh, damn it. And then later they <laughs> find out that it was this guy. And he, had caused, he was like a hellraiser. Hellraiser couldn't get thrown <laughs> off the force, couldn't do it.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and you know, like for as far as redemption, whether or not like people who are incarcerated find that or not, or like, you know, like they're straightening out of their path. Like Prez is is definitely the character who it's going through this show. Uh his arc towards redemption, which is kind of comes out of like seeing like it's, it seems like he's just yeah he's he's too late he leans on the nepotism <laughs> clearly he's like well fine i can do whatever but he's just like bored and irritated at what he's been presented as the job being and then when he finds um that he can actually be useful that yeah. he's applying his intelligence and his own skills to something um and he still ultimately has like a terrible arc and it's it's interesting how you know like just getting ahead of where prez ends up like you know at the end what pushes him off the force another an accidental shooting where um that just how that man how bad that man looks on paper yeah like like if you're following his character through the the lens of the wire you know the third the camera in the room uh you see this whole person but yeah what what if like you know i imagine like you know if you were a writer or blogger you just uncover all these things like he did this and this and this and this yeah. and this
4: yeah and now like he's a he's teacher
1: a, he's like a, that yeah. would be a scandal.
4: <laughs> that's the thing is like we're tempted to write them off as not having good qualities and somebody like prez Belusky was poorly cast you know as like To make a man like that a police officer, like we really need psychological tests to reveal whether they have anger management problems.
2: Right. You know, because I know
4: personally, I have a really bad temper. Even though I was interested in being a police officer, it would be a bad career choice for me because I have an anger problem. Could easily, you know, uh, Mm. I read there's some of the best cop books are by ex cops who want to, like, make up for something they've done, but, like, talk honestly about what happened. So this one cop, he said, I started with this idea of wanting to be the good cop who's helping people and reform-minded and not using too much force, and he said, within a year, I was beating up on people and getting angry and hurting people because of my temper, I was losing my temper. And he was like, I started as the guy that wanted to do something good. And then I ended up being the guy that was doing all the wrong things, you know? And so I knew personally, I was like, man, it's the best thing that I never got a badge. It's, it's similar in school systems.
2: I think, I think a lot of people uh, who become either teachers or cops or politicians they are in it either for the right reasons or the wrong reasons but if you stick around long enough and get disrespected and hated on long enough because of all the bad ones right then eventually you end up you know either dropping out not being able to deal with that whole system anymore or in many cases you you know you started out for the right reasons and now it's just like man The only way to survive. You you know why I started smoking cigarettes? I was working at McDonald's. I was 16. And, you know, in the break room, it smelled like cigarettes. And I was like, maybe if I start smoking cigarettes, I won't mind the smell. And you know what? Cigarettes still stink, and here I am, 23 years later, still addicted. But (laughs) like, it's a similar situation. It's like, well, maybe if I just join in, it won't stink anymore, you know? So yeah, there there are good cops, and there are good politicians, and there are good teachers, and they're rare, and they're worth their weight in gold. But because of the way the system is set up you know like the, the the best foreign language teacher in my school like uh, apparently there was an unwritten rule we don't teach language we just shuffle you through with a b you know and we had a french teacher who was a really good French teacher and wanted to teach French and they chased her out. They chased her out of the school, you know? So, you know, whether it's, whether it's, you know, preachers, politicians, you know, uh, school teachers, cops, there are certain jobs that do attract sociopaths but also attract empaths and you know, the empaths are either going to turn or, 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 or give up. Uh, Except for in the very rare cases where they can hang on and stay unchanged.
1: And we, you know, we forgot we get the introduction of uh, very, uh, two very important competent officers, but one (laughs) uh, especially who is just uh, was ground up and to a pulp and pushed down in the basement with Lester Freeman Who all we see of him is is doing his
2: his little uh, detailing on his dollhouse. (laughs) It's Louis
4: Couture's.
2: (laughs) the, The episode is entitled "The Detail," and Lester Freeman is into details. Like I love how everybody thinks Freeman, like including you know the people who put him on the detail, thought you know here's another sandbag. This guy will never get them anywhere. But no, they messed up. This guy is a real cop. He loves doing, you know, he loves the mystery. He loves the puzzle. Uh, I also love his kind of mentorship of Prez Beluski because he's the one that pulls Presby along. There are are times when only Lester and Prez know what's going on. And I love that. The fact that, like, you know, if you watch the first episode, you definitely would not have thought, you know, those two guys – uh, cause you know, you, you, just, you, you, see a lot of like lazy cops and, uh, you know, uh, you see a lot of bad cops that have been sunk on this detail, or, you know, stuck on this detail to sink it. Uh, and, and yeah, Freeman definitely, uh, uh, is one that will surprise us.
1: But man, it's, it really was brutal with this episode with Prez, you know, just looking at him again, it's like. It's an interesting thing, having watched this series so many times, like I'll never get back to, you know, that how, I you know, Prez came off the first time you're just watching him. And certainly, yeah, this time with, um, like I said, that the, the, the casual violence. And I think that's a, a big thing with if there's officers who are, you know, don't have a respect for the consequences of violence like he does, whether it's not knowing how to handle his damn gun or he hitting a kid <laughs> so hard that he shatters his orbital bone and, and ruins his vision for life within mm-hmm. just a, like whatever, like he wasn't intending to do that. that.
4: Police brutality is, uh, the only, the, the splashiest like video, um, the ones that look good on video. Those are the ones that we hear about, but police injuries, they can like, one small move can cause such a big injury and it's hard to like, so in Warren you didn't have a lot of shootings. You had a shooting every, you know, police shooting was was what I mean. You had a police shooting like every year or so, you know, it wasn't like a super frequent thing, but you had all these like low level injuries that were pretty serious. Like a guy's arm gets broken or, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. <clears throat> and, it's like, so the, the injury isn't serious enough to make a civil rights lawsuit about. But you try to do a complaint, but they don't investigate it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's like the department won't even attract a lot of attention because it's not a great news story just to be like, oh, they like hurt his arm. They like hurt his wrist, you know? And it's like, that could have been a really serious injury and probably completely unnecessary but yet, it doesn't sound so bad.
2: It's not um, if it leads. It's if it's it, if it's not if it lead. It leads if it's broken. It's it leads if it bleeds. Yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah. Well, there was all these small injuries, and they would file a complaint, file a civil right, civil rights lawsuit, and then the law director would settle it for a few thousand bucks. It's like ah oh, four thousand dollars, ah six thousand dollars. Which yeah. in big city departments you get more like fifty thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars, you know. But they were used to kind of lowballing and waiting out the people until they didn't have any money to pay a lawyer more. Because in a lot of cases they knew exactly how much these families had in terms of money. You know, they could, mm-hmm. they have all the property records and everything. Like they know if they own their house like they know they they can strategize you know with if they're dealing with a well-funded family that could like hang up for a few years with a civil rights lawsuit you know but that's like the entire um calculation you know is like oh well how much do you think they could pay for a lawyer for you know and uh it takes a lot to really get people riled up but these small volley violations are happening all the time like in cleveland they had uh, officers that were, were pistol whipping people. Right. Good and that's guy. a pretty like splashy headline worthy problem, you know, but every police department is different. They'll have, it's like their own little personality. This one does a lot of pistol whipping. The other one does a lot of strip searches, you know, Yeah, Baltimore remember, had the strip searches too.
1: I remember, I remember there's the, yeah, the, 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 the sicko in your book who's uh, all about the strip searches um, yep. And, you know, that scene where, you know, so the, uh, the kid gets cold cocked by by Prez and then we see that's the moment when uh, the residents of the tower really turn on them and the shit hits the yeah. fan or actually like the right. TVs hit the car <laughs> <laughs> and they're yeah. ducking for cover
3: everything. And, and, in the ch- You know, the like in the scene. morning,
1: it's a really interesting little uh, uh, bait and switch that they did with the writing in the end in this episode where in the morning McNulty wakes up, there's a phone call, and he's like, oh, shit, there's something in the paper, and you're assuming it was the what happened in the high-rises. No, that doesn't make the news at all. Uh, it was mm. you know, the state witness story leaked, and they kind of fake you out as the audience member with that. But <laughs> it was interesting that, yeah, the media wasn't there, and even if they had been – you know, if like Daniels is coaching them like this is what you need right. to say happened. Everything you were doing here was legitimate and right. They would have been telling the media, look and at these so out of control times, project.
4: Yeah. Uh, you The, know, the media will rubber stamp a what a
2: prosecutor or yeah, a cop says over
4: and over again. In Warren in the 60s, they called everything that the black community tried to do in terms of protesting police brutality a riot Mm -hmm. and it's the perfect thing it's like a hundred years of strategy has gone into that simple eggs that simple accusation oh they they caused a riot mayhem
1: (laughs) yeah and and you know that that was in this what they show us that was clearly community defense
4: (laughs) yeah yeah i mean the, the police are looked at as an occupying force and it's like, well, you know, I if I was living in the neighborhood that the police are focused on and people are shot in my neighborhood, I would want the, cru- the guilty to be punished, you know. Uh, but in tight-knit neighborhood, you got to choose sides. And if you choose cops, then you might as well move. Right, you know, because you can't, you can't do that in a tight knit neighborhood. You can't talk to him. In Warren, there was a, there was an officer that was not well liked uh, by the media, but he was really trying in the community. He was white. He was trying to build like neighborhood watch groups in the black community and trying to collaborate with, um, with the families there, and people really appreciated it. But it's very difficult to straddle that line where you're making friends in the black community, but you're also a cop, and they shouldn't trust you. Basically, you know, when it comes down to it, you're not on their side. You know, even if you're looking out for their safety, right. you're really just gonna like put their relatives and stuff in jail. And in these little communities, like the relationships are so deep. It's like, Oh yeah, so-and-so's like my hairdresser's cousin and everybody knows exactly how they're connected. And it was like the, the public safety director who was like an undercover brother, he was related to one of the drug dealers in town. (laughs) And so he would go talk to the drug dealers and get the real story on shit, you know, but he would have to like promise them that he wasn't going to do anything you know, with what they told him. So, like, that's not ideal. Like, if people knew that in the media, they would they would skin his hide. You know, the public safety director getting tips from drug dealers and not telling the police. Yeah. It's, it's yeah, a that's situation what... of divided loyal, loyalty. And I've heard that, like, New York police who live in the Bronx are not able to... Show their face in public so much, you know, it's like they're looked at as mafia. And even if they're trying to help their community, like that's not how the community looks at it.
1: And you know, it's ultimately too. What did they go to the towers for? It's like we got to go there. We got to show them who we are, uh, mess them yeah. up. And then I love that we then we have a scene the next day or that evening, cars burned out. Business is booming. <laughs> yeah, Every, Everything's right back rolling in the towers in the pit. Yeah.
4: Yeah. You know, so shows, uh, yeah, it shows
1: the, the, the lack of efficacy that that type of police work has completely like what you said. And all it does is destroy any hope you have of the community helping you.
0: Yeah,
4: yeah exactly. The It's like a, an immovable object coming up against a, you know, it's like, there's, there's no way that you can really change the system. You know, like the, the black cops that go into the police department, they're, uh, too blue for the brothers, but too black for the badge. <laughs> or they become right. like the most brutal cops, you know? And it's like, it's a classic story, but I, 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 I hear the story a lot among cops that even if you're black, even if your skin is black, the uniform is blue, and pretty mm. soon that's what happens. Like you're more blue than black, and I'm a white guy, but uh, it's it's tough to go into that profession and continue to try to reform it you know, because you, you become friends with everybody. You don't want to make a, you know, you don't want to make waves. And Daniels
1: expresses this perfectly in, in, um, what, what I think could be. So the quote for this episode is you cannot lose if you do not play by Daniel's (laughs) wife, Marla. But I think an, uh, alternate quote, um, if we're going to like hang the quote on this episode that taught that makes it about the blue wall it's what daniel says um uh he says i hang them i hang myself
4: yep yeah 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 but what is uh, spe- that that phrase about you cannot lose if you don't play can you talk a little bit about that? oh yeah I you know from, i I, I, I love the fact
2: that uh when 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 they're having dinner right daniel's and his wife and um you know, one thing you see is the look on her face when she realizes, you know, his kind of nonchalance. And, you know, at, at, at this point, he's still a slave to the system. He's just going to do whatever he's got to do. Uh, but the look on his wife's face when he explains that, no, I'm, I'm going to coach my men uh, so that this 14 year old boy who has been blinded, um, you know, it's it It's also, you know, speaking of Prez, like later, I think there's some line he says something about like uh, at a football game or something. Something about how nobody wins. One side just loses slower than the other. Uh, and, you know, like it kind of comes back to that idea of the game that, you know, uh, another interesting thing to me is how the game means so many different things Uh you know to different uh different characters and in, in in different uh you know like to play ball you know if, if you're one of the cops you need to play ball for instance uh uh but yeah i think what
1: marla to me and in, in in how she's t- trying to tell she's trying how she's trying to tell daniels to navigate this is to say that because he seems to um think like well he either has to do the case or not do the case, and she's like, "Well, how do you just thread the needle and don't piss anyone off?"
4: But what does it mean not to play? Does it mean that he should go hard?
2: Because he's in a lose lose situation. He's in a lose lose situation, so the only but way he shouldn't play at all. Yeah, exactly. When you're in a lose lose situation, your best bet, like she wants to, you know, she wants to get him out. uh uh, of the force you know uh, once again his his wife and uh you know kima's uh uh, kima's girlfriend they both kind of hate the fact that they they hate their significant others jobs uh and and i think that's another one of those scenes where you see that being set up uh how you know daniels is yet another one of these and it's not just the cops either yet another one of these characters who, you know, their profession or whatever it is that they do uh, and want to be is at odds with, you know, their family and they're living their best life, their health, etc.
1: And, you know, um, we were talking about how McNulty influences D'Angelo through the course of that interrogation. You know, McNulty's presence has an effect on a lot of people. And I think with Daniels, it it um, manifests in the fact that I think Daniels resents the kind of person that mcnulty thinks he is because you know (laughs) mcnulty just assumes daniels is nothing but wanting to be a toady for burrell and a company man and uh daniels has been that has that inertia towards that posture but he does want to do good work and mcnulty brings that out of him to an extent also daniels we see in this episode you know where the scene where we learn that Pres Beluski is related to, uh, you know, the <laughs> chief or, or uh, deputy Valchek or whatever, the whatever Valchek, the big shot over there. And that, you know, and that bubbles up to like, well, it's kind of like ultimately Pres is protected by the mayor. Um, but it, that scene yeah, is, yeah, we learn that when yeah. Daniels is talking with another major about how they're both on the career track. And so Daniels is on the career track. And so that's why, you know, if you're going to do that, you gotta, you're going to absorb a lot of the culture of certainly like what he's doing with I need to protect my men because I will never rise to any level of power and, um, yeah, and make things messy like the people above me. And then I'm done. I'll never get picked for this or that or I'll get put into.
4: The, the cop that I worked for writing his memoirs, one of the the sayings inside police departments is you're promoted to the level of your incompetence. Uh, yeah, I've heard and that one. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. The suggestion is uh, that more often than not, the yes men are promoted and the people like McNulty who are independent thinkers are not because they complicate the job. And really, like, with, you know... With like hundreds of thousands of cases, you know, happening, like you don't want somebody that's getting stuck over on cases. Like they need cases cleared, right. forget about it. You know, don't get stuck on a case. But a lot of these really good detectives will be tortured by cases for like years after they're retired. You know? <clears throat> and it's like, well, are you trying to kind get of the cop. detectives? Are you trying to get the cops not to let themselves feel? And it's like, well, yes, you shouldn't be feeling. The investigation has to be cold, you know? It has to be done with a, a cold mind. You can't be, like, thinking of vengeance all the time. So, or, in
1: like, we see the the last scene of we we get our, you know, like, um, drunky McNulty... Uh, it's like the reg- It's like the recurring. Like, how are we drinking with McNulty this episode? Because there's always something. He's just <laughs> drunk in his car, and is like sees two kids breaking into something and like stumbles down the hill. <laughs> hey,
2: okay. I'm the police. <laughs> you yeah. tried.
4: Yeah.
2: Uh, the the scene where he and he sits down and he like kind of looks down at his badge, uh, just drunkenly laughing. Like, you know, like even he knows like I am a mess.
1: (laughs) I love the uh Dominic West did a fantastic job of perfecting the melting face of when McNulty's really drunk, it's just like his whole face looks like it's melting off his jaw. (laughs) Another
4: good uh comp phrase. A policeman is never hungry, cold, or tired. That's a cool one. Cause it's like cops tell each other that. Like you if you're your cop, you never oh. say you're hungry, you never say you're cold. You know? You have to uh, up appearances. Yeah. You don't need to use the bathroom. You know, you're not starving. Right. <laughs> you're just doing your job. <laughs> But in New York, York, they're always freezing their asses off, but they can't say anything about it. So they do these uh, verticals just to keep warm. So they go up in the stairwells in the apartments just to stay out of the weather. And then they end up shooting somebody because, you know, somebody's smoking weed in the stairwell. But it's like all they were doing was trying to stay warm. But are they going to tell the papers that? Hell no. You know? You were doing verticals because the law enforcement need necessity. (laughs) It's like, wait, you were walking through the (laughs) stairwells? What law enforcement purpose is served there? (laughs) Yeah. I was cold. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway.
1: I think we have walked to uh, the end of this wire here. Um, Any closing thoughts, gentlemen? Um, Tim certainly want to make sure to, uh, if you got pluggables to plug. We'll put you your links on Twitter and, and anything else you got. But um, what yeah, are you up my to? book is
4: called Blue Mafia: Police Police Brutality and Consent Decrees in Ohio, and uh, it was my Mitzvah and my obsession for the last fifteen years. So I'm still working on the film adaptation, and I hope that one day it can oh, be nice. as good as The Wire. But uh, the wire is hard to imitate.
1: I got to tell you, when I read your book, it was just like it read like reading, you know, something I could see on screen and 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 should be more widely read. I certainly have done everything I can to promote it. I have a long interview with you on uh, my podcast, um, so and I highly recommend everybody read it. And um, definitely going to be having you back on for more episodes, Tim
4: absolutely It'd be my pleasure thanks for inviting me guys
1: and phil you want to attack anything
2: on or we could have faded it out right there
4: oh uh and
2: well you know as always uh Kafka com, guy on twitter if you uh if you want to see what i'm up to i've got a, a book in the works and always got a couple other cool. projects on the back burner you can hear a little bit about that there on twitter usually and I will be uh, – I'm BZ Douglas. You can find me at BZ
1: Douglas, all the things. I don't know. I'll put links in the thing. You don't need to listen to it and hear it now. We're <laughs> at the end of the episode. You've, you've stuck around. We appreciate you listening. Uh, if you like the show, please tell Thanks people so it's much. a new show. Share it. Um, and if you think of any really good uh, guests we should have on because, like, you know, Tim, you were please. awesome. This was yeah. great. This is exactly what I wanted for the show is just uh-huh. The Wire is such a great – uh jumping off point for conversations with people who really yes. know some shit about some shit and you know some shit
4: <laughs> we should get a we should yeah, get a absolutely cop on i can make some uh recommendations
1: absolutely oh yeah. man That's, seriously we'll be, we'll be yes for law enforcement uh you know people
2: who have been in in any aspect of the game i would say I, you know, I've got a friend who uh, uh, was in prison for uh, uh, trafficking. Maybe I could talk to him. You know who would be a get, who I'd like to get, who I love following on Twitter? Uh,
1: Frank Serpico. Oh, wow.
4: Amazing. <laughs> I'm going to look in my email. I got this one <clears throat> cop friend who is on YouTube, and he would definitely he would be all about this.
1: Well, all right, gents. Well, man. This has been awesome so far. This has been fun.
4: Yeah, it has. Totally enjoyed it, guys. Hope I didn't dominate the com- the conversation too much. <laughs>
1: no, you're the guest. That's what you're supposed to do.
4: Exactly. Yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, some amazing insights. Like I said, this was this like crystallized what what I want this show to be. Like people with like an interesting perspective and an inside view on some uh on some subject or some world that you know we can refract through the wire and that this absolutely succeeded at that so hope uh hope to have you back again several times for that matter heck it's 60 episodes you know
0: Back. Well, I beg your pardon Walk the straight and narrow track If you walk with Jesus He's gonna save your soul You gotta keep the devil way down In the hall. You don't have-